0: You have your Bibles. First Thessalonians chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five will be in verses one through eleven this morning. If you're uh, visiting with us, we've been going through a, a sermon series called "In the Meantime," where we're looking at the books of First and Second Thessalonians, where Paul talks about the Apostle Paul, who wrote these letters, um, is talking to a church who cared about last things, who cared about the end times. Maybe he had some disjointed theology related to the end times and he was writing them to help them understand things about the end times better, but also to help them to understand how they need to live in the meantime as we await Christ's return. And so the theme of these two books is really how do I live faithfully for the Lord as I await his return. In chapter 4 verse 13 through chapter 5 verse 11 is really one of the great eschatological passages in the New Testament. And what that means is it talks about the end times. We're not afraid of big words here, right? Right? Eschatological. Eschatological. Five, six syllables? That's going to be good for some of us, right? You can write that down. What would you learn today at church? Uh six-syllable word. No idea what it means or how to say it, but it's there. But what this is is a great passage that teaches us and helps us to understand some things about The end times and some things about like what's going to go down and how it's going to happen. And what I want to do is read chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 for you, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 1, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security... Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us sleep as other, Let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. Christians have always had questions and thoughts and theories and ideas about last things. Many Christians have always been obsessed with knowing about the events and the timing and the specifics of the Lord's return. That's not something that's actually new. As a matter of fact, Jesus' most famous and important teaching on the end times comes in what's called the Olivet Discourse of Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 and 25, difficult to understand, but Jesus' most important teaching on the end times, and it was precipitated by this statement. He's there, and he's with his disciples, and his disciples say to him, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're like, how are we going to know when this whole thing's going to go down? How are we going to know when, like, you're coming back, and you're going to kick butt and take names, and it's going to be amazing, and we're going to win, and they're going to lose, and we want to know how are we going to know about it? What's going to be the signs? And Jesus gives them two of the hardest chapters in the entire Bible to figure out and understand. You're like, I was just looking for a date, right? I was just looking for, like, you tell me. It's going to be Reformation Sunday, 2023. I'm ready. After the potluck. But let's do this. (laughs) I'm ready, and you think the guys would have gotten it. Jesus dies, he ascends, or he, he rises, and then he's, he's hanging out, he's spending time with them, he appears to them. In Acts chapter one, they say this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? All right, like I know a couple weeks ago wasn't the time, and lots happened in the last few weeks, Jesus. But Will you at this time restore to the kingdom of Israel? And he says, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. The times or the seasons. That's what Paul says here now concerning the times and the seasons. You see, Christians have always been obsessed with wanting to know the when and the where and the how and what's it going to look like and what's going to go down. And and those were questions in the first century. And not much has changed in 2,000 years. In fact, you can walk through... uh, church history, Christian history, and see time and time again how people have tried to ask and answer this question. And usually when there's a great upheaval in world history, that these types of things just get uh, exacerbated more and more and more, right? And so it wouldn't be a surprise with some of the events that were going on in the 1980s that this great resurgence in the 70s and 80s, this great resurgence of end times theology was upon us. And Christians were asking questions and reading books and, and writing books and writing materials. And I've always striven to give you guys good resources. I want you to have like important good resources that you can put in your library and you can really bank on and, and help you understand the scripture. And so today I would suggest to you on the rapture the final shout, rapture report, 1989. Some of you were alive in 1989. The Rapture Report 1989, also known as 89 Reasons Why the Rapture will happen in 1989. Now here's here's the bad news, okay? This dude wrote a booklet in 1988. You know what it was called? 88 Reasons Why the Rapture's going to happen in 1988. They sold, Jim Isaacson was actually in ministry in the 1980s, and he told me this week, he told me, like, you know what? Like, I was in a town that had a bookstore. Now, a bookstore, for some of you, is a place where you could go and buy books. Leave that there. But he said the Christian bookstore in town couldn't keep the 88 book on the shelf. They were just flying out. And I was like, yeah, but this one's only two bucks. That's probably why, right? But back in the 89, $2 was like, you know, what, like $90 now or something? I don't know, right? Right? But they couldn't keep this book on the shelf. And then, you know, January 1, 1989 happens. Everybody's like, uh. So then, note from the publisher. Did you know that when our calendar says 1989, it's only been 1,998 years since 1 AD. The first century only had 99 years. And we messed up last year, but all the stuff that we said last year is actually going to happen in 1989. So buy the new one. And Jim said, people were buying the new one like hotcakes, right? Don't buy this book. You can borrow this copy. You guys want to know who it came from? Yeah, our new ministry director, Mr. Jason Best, actually gave me this. And he was serious. He said, you need to read. No, I'm just kidding. He had an old copy. I was like, dude, I got to use that on Sunday. This kind of stuff has been going on for a couple thousand years as Christians have tried to discern and figure out the end times. And what it gives us is an example, okay, I firmly believe, as I will say it in a minute, that we all need to be able to say the word eschatology. I won't make you try it now, I don't want to hurt anybody. But we should be able to say the word, we should be able to understand the word, that we should be able to think deeply about the end times. I think that that's important. But what has happened throughout the course of Christian history is two misses. As we've read theology, as we've read the end times, as we've read the end times passages, the first of the two misses is this inordinate speculation and fascination with the times and the days and the dates and setting the date, reading all the end times prophecy and figuring out how, like, the nation of Russia or the nation of Israel or Russia and Israel together, like, putting all those things together. You wonder why people are freaking out about the end times right now. It's because the nation of Russia is in the news, the nation of Israel is in the news. Church, whenever that's happened over the course of like the last hundred years, this just continues to foment this excitement and energy about end times speculation. One of the great misses in understanding end times and understanding the coming of Christ is this inordinate speculation and uh, fantasizing about and trying to figure out All of the little ins and outs of it. So that's one miss. But the miss over on the other side is when people are so fixated on here and now, and so fixated on my current prosperity and my current situation and getting ahead here and now and the present, that there's no thought for the future whatsoever. So over on this side, you have the guy who's the conspiracy theorist, right? He's got a bunker in his house, and he's got canned meat, and he's got enough water to last until whenever the end time comes, guns, ammunition, which we're all for, by the way, right? But use them. Don't lose them. Like, the thing is, the guy over here is the conspiracy theorist, and and, and he's just thinking about things from that perspective, whereas the person over here isn't thinking about any of it at all. Like the Lord could come at any time and they're scratching their heads like, I didn't see that coming. Like what was, wait, what? There was going to be a second coming, right? So we don't want to miss in either of those directions. What we want to do is we want to to study and understand this. So I came up with a little phrase and I think I came up with it on my own. I didn't read it anywhere else. But you might ask like, why didn't Jesus just give them the date? When his disciples came and they're like, Lord, when's it going to be? Why not just give them a date? It's going to be like twenty, twenty-four 24, right before the election, because you know how that's going to be, right? And he's looking down through time, and he's like, that's going to get really ugly, okay. Right? Why not just give them a date? And here's what I thought. If, if the Lord just gave us a date, if you could open to a chapter and verse and be like, here's when it's going to happen, that would do one of two things to most of us. It would make us either lazy or crazy, right? It would make us either lazy or crazy, Lazy, like, well, that's not going to happen for another few hundred years. i got nothing to worry about. Forget it. Right? Or crazy. That's happening this afternoon after the potluck. Ah! We're not supposed to be lazy. We're not supposed to be crazy. What we're supposed to do is look forward to the return of Christ, if you're a Christian, with great anticipation, with great hope. And it's supposed to propel us to live faithfully in the meantime. And that's what Paul is going to unpack in these verses. And here's how it's going to work. In verses 1 through 5, he's going to talk about our understanding. He's going to give us some eschatological understanding. We're going to learn a little bit more about the end times. But in verses 6 through 11, then he's going to say that that understanding should always lead us to faithful living. That my eschatological understanding should always lead to eschatological faithfulness. And so, in six through eleven, he'll just lay out for us how can I be faithful in the midst of it. So let's dig into these verses, First Thessalonians chapter five, verses one through five. Again, our understanding in verse one it says this: Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Now, here's my understanding of what Paul is doing here. If you were here last week, I laid out that there are different ways to think about uh, the end times and different ways that, that good Christians. Think about the sequence of the events of the end times. And you can look those up and study those yourself. My understanding of what's happening here is that in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 that Paul was talking about an event that we would call the rapture of the church. And I explained that last year, uh, last week, that there's the church age, and then that Christ will come in the air, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we are alive and remain. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds, and we'll meet the Lord in the air. That's called the rapture of the church. My understanding is that four thirteen through 18 talks about the rapture, but then when he says, now concerning the times and seasons... That phrase now concerning, when Paul uses that in different letters, usually he, he's switching topics. He's talking, he's starting to talk about something different. And my understanding is that now in 5, 1 through 11, he's going to talk about something that we'll call the day of the Lord. He'll call the day of the Lord. And then what the day of the Lord is, is that he's moving now from the rapture to what we would refer to as the tribulation. There's a, at the rapture of the church, the church goes out, and there's a seven-year tribul- time of tribulation. If you read Revelation 6 through 18, that is in that theological system. Revelation 6 through 18 is talking about the time of tribulation, okay? Okay. And that what we're reading in 5, 1-11 of 1 Thessalonians is that time, the day of the Lord. Again, that's one way of looking at it. It's the way that I understand it. Other good Christians see it differently, and that's okay. But I want you to see, uh, again, what, what we're understanding here. So 5, 1-11, we're talking about this time of, of tribulation. I want you to notice what he says, though. Concerning the times and the seasons, or times and dates, times and, some of your translations say times and epics, right? Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Another way that you could say that is, you already know all you need to know. Now remember, this is probably, I think this is the second New Testament letter after Galatians, that this is the second New Testament letter written. But it was written before 50 A.D., Right? This is an early writing. This is before they had the Gospels in written form. This is before they had any of the other letters in written form. And he's saying to this group of people that he'd met for a few weeks and he had taught for a few weeks and surely they had heard some of the oral tradition and Jesus tradition and teachings and things like that, that you already know what you need to know. And here's what we need to know, church, is that the Scripture tells us everything we need to know about the end times. It doesn't tell me everything I want to know about the end times, but it surely tells us everything that we need to know about the end times. And so here's how it works. This morning, you're going to hear me quote or allude to a variety of texts in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Teaching on the end times is all over Scripture, the prophetic literature of the, New, of the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, not just in Revelation. Revelation. But one of the jobs that I have as a pastor, and I believe that all responsible thinking Christians has, is to do theology. And so what we do, if we're trying to understand a cer- what the whole Bible says about a certain area of theology, is that we do something called systematic theology. And what that means is this, is that we have, we have the doctrine of the end times, or eschatology, right? And we have that doctrine, and I believe that there is stuff to be said about that doctrine all over the Bible. So my job is to take all of the different pieces that I can, from the Old Testament, the prophetic literature, and the allusions and things that are there, the teachings of Jesus, the New Testament letters, the apocalypse of John, which we call Revelation, and my job is to take all of those things and to look at all of them together and to interpret them in such a way that there is cohesion, that they make sense all together, and put together a a theological system, okay? Okay? You're like, oh, that's what you do on Monday through Saturday. I thought you only worked on Sundays. Okay, there you go, right? But it's so important for us to be able to do that. And I would admit that it's my job to do that in a lot of ways. At this church, God has tasked me to be one of the, the theologians and the people who think through this stuff. But it's all of our jobs together to think through these things. And this takes deep study. And this takes us reading and thinking and interacting. And so what I try to do is I try to look at at the end times as a theological system and look at what all the Bible says about it and put it together in something that's coherent so that what I'm saying one passage means doesn't completely contradict what another passage means. Does that make sense? And so then I come and I present to you that system. So when I talk about pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism, that's called a theological system of the end times, right? And I know you're all like ready to eat lunch at this point. But the point is, is that the deep study of the end times can be really a profitable experience. I don't want us to miss by just thinking, eh, end times, I'm a panmillennialist. Like, I know you all are, right? Do this. We're all panmillennialists. If you believe in Jesus, you're a panmillennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end. That's a seminary joke. I forgot it in the first service, so make sure you tell them. Like, seminary dads wait for this stuff. A seminary joke and a dad joke in one Thank you, thank you, sir. But the deep study, like really studying the last things is very profitable if it's done in the right way and done for the right reasons. And what it's supposed to do is help us develop anticipation and hope for the future while we live faithfully right now. That's what it's supposed to do. So as I'm studying that and putting that stuff together, I'm like, this is amazing. The Lord's going to come, and I'm going to be ready. I'm not going to be caught off guard, and I'm going to go to be with him, and it's going to be great. And then we get to verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now we're going to talk for a minute about the day of the Lord here because that is not going to be pretty. It's going to come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So let's talk about what that's going to look like. Again, in my theological system, this is talking about the the tribulation. Christians aren't going to be around, if I'm right about this, in the tribulation time. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is actually something that is expounded on at great length throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's much more than I can go into here, but I'll just give you a little brief synopsis. That particular phrase, "the day of the Lord," is used at least nineteen times in the Old Testament, along with many, many other allusions and other um, ways of phrasing it. But at least nineteen times for that, and then in the New Testament, it's used at least four times again with a variety of other allusions. And especially in the Old Testament, it is invariably about a, a temporal event, like a real live, de- a real thing that happened, a temporal day of the Lord that points forward to an eschatological, an end times day of the Lord, a final day of the Lord. And it has to do with, this is important, it has to do with God's judgment, okay? When you read about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, I'm going to take you to two places in just a minute. You're going to discover a brand new book of the Bible in just a minute. I'm not going to quote from the Apocrypha, but some of you are going to be like, I never knew that book was in the Bible. Wow, this is cool. But it invariably has to do with God's judgment. And it invariably has to do with God's judgment in a temporal circumstance. But also we understand it as pointing forward to a final or a last day of the Lord. A final day of God's judgment. It's always speaking of wrath and judgment. It always has to do with death, desolation, destruction, bloodshed. The prophet Joel talks a lot about the day of the Lord. He calls it the great and terrible day of the Lord. If you have a Bible and you can get to it quickly and you desire to, go to Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13. And again, as I read these, I just want you to see. I want you to understand when we read the Bible and we read some of these words, we can kind of blow by them. But what does the day of the Lord have to do with? Isaiah 13.6, wail for the day of the Lord is near. And you'll notice it says, uh, right above 13.1, at least in my translation, it says the judgment of Babylon. That's the temporal, that's the right then context. Wail for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty is, uh, will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs, and agony. They will will seize them. They will be in anguish like a what? Like a woman in labor. Paul's actually drawing on the same imagery. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make a land of desolation and destroy its sinners from it. And you can continue to go down through there. I won't, but you can continue to go down through there and see what the day of the lord looks like. Now for that new book of the bible that some of you will discover for the very first time. It's called Zephaniah. And I didn't just sneeze right then. Zephaniah. So if you go to Matthew and then you work back a few books, you're going to find Zephaniah. Okay? Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and then Malachi, and then the books that we know called Matthew, right? Zephaniah chapter 1. We'll start in verse 14. Zephaniah 1 14 and following. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath, it is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day like any other day in the Pacific Northwest. I learned that in the first service. I was reading through this. I was like, wait, that's just called like, you know, January in the Northwest. Verse 16, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. And we'll stop there. But you see the day of the Lord. And I want you to see a day of judgment. In a day of wrath. And I want to say that in the 21st century, there are no church growth manuals that say, preach a lot of death and destruction and people will come to church. They'll just be flocking to your church and it'll be amazing. It's not popular to, to preach on God's judgment and God's wrath, but it is very unloving not to preach on God's judgment and God's wrath. If you knew that someone you loved was running headlong off a cliff and they didn't see the cliff and they were going to run off of it, how loving would you be if you just stood there and watched them run? Preaching on the wrath and the judgment of God is not only a responsibility, but it is a loving thing to do. And I want you to know and see and understand that this is about God's wrath and God's judgment. That when He says, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, You are aware that the day of the Lord is going to come. Church, the day of the Lord is going to come. And it's a great and terrible day. It is a day of wrath. It is a day of judgment. And for those who don't know the Lord, it is the worst day. The day of the Lord also includes in the Old Testament this idea of deliverance for the people of God, that there's the idea of deliverance. And so my understanding as we talk about the, the eschatological day of the Lord, that the, this final day of the Lord, it's a, when the Lord is going to Exercise judgment on the unbelieving world and also prepare the nation of Israel for the return of Christ and His establishment of His kingdom, the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ. When I hear Day of the Lord, that's the way that I understand it again. Others slightly different, but everyone will tell you that it has to do primarily with God's wrath and God's judgment. And so that's important because it sets us up for then the next verses. It says... It says that it's going to come as a thief in the night. You are aware, verse 2, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There are several places in the New Testament where it uses the same terminology. How many of you have seen the movie, A Thief in the Night? I had like three or four in the first service. Okay, so my church back in the day, I grew up in an interesting church. And they had the, and I will say this in all... With all seriousness, they had the scare the hell out of you mentality sometimes. And so the the Thief in the Night movie was one of said movies. And we would always have this service. It was called a watch night service. Anybody else? Watch night services, okay? And so... Uh, On December 31st every year, they would have a watch night service, and at 11 o'clock, you would gather in the church auditorium, and they would play A Thief in the Night, this movie. And it was all about what was going to happen during the tribulation. Like, if you're not a Christian, if Christians are out of here at the tribulation, if you've seen the Left Behind series, that's child's play compared to The Thief in the Night. I'm damaged for life, psychologically, because of The Thief in the Night. We would literally beg my parents to let us go play in the nursery, and they would have The Thief in the Night. And they got us all there because they would afterwards, you know what they would have? A potluck. Watch A Thief in the Night and then go eat a potluck. I'm like, I'm scarfed. I can't eat anything, right? I just watched somebody get their head chopped off with a guillotine. Like, wow. Yeah. So that's where The Thief in the Night comes from. I just throw that in there for free in case you're looking for something to watch on Netflix. (laughs) The idea of of, of... This day coming as a thief in the night, though, as is depicted graphically in the movie, comes from Matthew 24, Luke chapter 12, 2 Peter. Peter uses it in 2 Peter, twice in the book of Revelation. It's talked about as coming as a thief in the night. Thieves come unexpectedly, and thieves come harmfully. In the first service, I said, like, look, have you ever known a thief in history that broke into someone's house and didn't have harmful intent? Of course, there was one person that had, right? Generally speaking, thieves come. It's unexpected. You didn't get a postcard, a text, a phone call, a note on your door. I'll be here tomorrow night at three a.m. Right? So it comes unexpectedly, and then they also they come harmfully. And that's what he's getting at here. He uses another word picture that should be clearer to some of us than others. He says, "There's peace and security, then some destruction, and then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman." All the ladies are now like. Okay, I can identify with this at this point. I don't know a lot about labor pains from firsthand experience. You might be surprised. I know we live in a new day. I don't know a lot firsthand. But I will tell you from stern observation, I can tell you a few things. They come suddenly, right, like 2 o'clock in the morning. Honey, it's time. Time. Go, go, go. My wife was calming me down. She's having a kid. She's calming me. Calm down. Relax. We're going to be okay. But we got to get there. What if? Ah! Oh, right? Labor pains come suddenly. Secondly, ladies, correct me if I'm wrong, but they are unavoidable. Right? Labor pains are, 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 number one, sudden, but they're also unavoidable. And number three, I've just been told that they're maybe a little painful. Right? So when these words are used in Isaiah, and Paul uses them here, all of this is supposed to help us to see a few things. They're word pictures on purpose. When he says the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night, and it's going to be like a woman who's like actively giving birth. He's talking about the unexpectedness, the unavoidable nature of it, and the harsh nature, the difficulty, the difficult nature of it. And I want you to see all of those in there, but I also want you to see how most people are going to be thinking when this happens. It says in verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security. If you read Revelation 6 through 18, if that really is talking about this time of the tribulation, it doesn't look like very much peace and security. And that's why Second Thessalonians and other places will talk about a great deceiver. That people are going to be so spiritually deceived that they're going to be thinking, oh, peace and security. When in reality, the wrath of God is coming. And they're going to be thinking, things are great, and things are fine, and things are amazing. When in reality, the full wrath and fury and judgment of God is coming on people who do not know the Lord. That's what's coming in that day. Verse 4. So in verses 2 and 3, you heard a lot of they language. In verse 4, notice how it changes. The pronouns change. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. This is a warning for non Christians, but it is a reassurance for Christians. Again, in my understanding of of this theological system, the day of the Lord, this time that we're talking about, is not something that Christians will be going through. It's not something that Christians will be experiencing. That what he's laying out is what's going to happen to those who don't know the Lord. You're fully aware that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the life, but you are not in darkness to get surprised like a thief. You're children of the light, children of the day. Paul loves to use this analogy of light and darkness to help us understand the difference between people who are Christians, who who uh, follow the Lord, and people who are non-Christians. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he says that He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 5, 8 for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And you think about light and darkness. You try to walk around your house in the pitch black at night, especially if you've got young kids with all those toys, right? The Lego landmines, yeah, Andrew knows. And we're past those days, right? But I'm stepping on lipstick and hair products and everything else. They're not in here, are they? Okay, good. <laughs> right? You guys be quiet. <laughs> No, but think about darkness and light. And we can walk around in the darkness, and it'd be silly for someone to put on a blindfold or to walk around in darkness and think that somehow they were perfectly fine and could see just fine. And they're tripping and they're stumbling over things and they're going in the wrong direction and all of that. But they think that they're just fine, right? That's the analogy that Paul uses to talk about somebody who's not a believer, who's not a Christian, that they're walking in darkness, but as you know, if you just turn on the light, you can see everything, and it completely changes the way you walk, doesn't it? Right? I get my phone light out at night when I'm trying to walk around my house, and I'm like, oh, there's a dog. I shouldn't step on that. Right? And it changes the way that you walk because you can see. And that's the analogy that he's getting at. That for those who aren't Christians, are walking around in darkness, and they're going to run headlong into the wall of God's wrath and they're going to run headlong into the wall of of God's judgment. They're going to think they're walking around completely fine until they run into it. And if that's you today, we don't want that for anyone. And I would say that there is a way of escape, that there is a way out, that there is in fact a better way. That that verse in Ephesians, actually the verse in Colossians It says He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That when I admit that, yes, I am a sinner, and yes, I need Christ for my salvation, when I become a Christian, like Paul said, the the scales fell off his eyes and he could see. Right? That at the end of the day, that that is how I begin to walk, not in darkness but in light. And that's the way that we escape that coming wrath accepting Christ. In verses 6 through 11 after this understanding is built and hopefully we will see Again, in this particular system, 413-18, through 18, the church is raptured. And he was writing that to say, your dead loved ones, they're not missing out, they're not missing out on, on the coming of the Lord, but your dead lo- loved ones, you can have hope that you're going to be reunited with them and reunited with Christ, 413-18. 5, 1-11, through 11, there's a coming day of wrath and a coming day of judgment. And as a Christian, you're not going to endure that. But for those who aren't Christians, they will. And so he's now going to talk about, How do we live faithfully? If I have that understanding, how does it impact how I live? Verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation." Again, Paul loves to use word pictures, metaphors, and he does so here. And so I want you to think about two guards, two people who are being paid to guard something, two, two military personnel who are being paid to guard something top secret. Their whole job is to make sure that the enemy doesn't come and attack, that the, the people inside the fort are safe, and the people who are inside stay inside, the people who are outside stay outside, their whole job is to, to watch And one of them is awake and alive and sober, and he's had a lot of coffee, and he's excited about his job, right? And he's there, and he's doing his job. His mind is awake. His eyes are awake. His body is awake. He's alive. He's awake, and he's well, and he's doing what he's supposed to do. But over here, you have another guard. This guard is drunk and asleep. Might I submit that that's not a good guard? Might have submitted that if you're in the fort, that's not the guard that you want guarding you, correct? Some of you are like, well, I don't know, that might not be too bad, right? That a, a guard who is drunk and asleep is not the guard that is ready to do what the guard has been called to do. What Paul is saying is that as, a, as Christians, we are awake and we're called to live awake and alive, sober-minded. In fact, Peter talked about this as well. And I preached on this not too, too long ago. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, that's gird up the loins of your minds. Prepare your mind for battle. Prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, clear-minded, clear-thinking, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That as Christians, when we're clear thinking, then we're thinking properly about the end times. But when Paul talks to the Thessalonians, he says that there are people whose perspective toward the end times are like those people who are asleep and drunk. And I think there's a couple pieces to this. There are a couple reasons why people are unfaithful to the Lord. Number one, I think sleep signifies this. I think sleep signifies passive moral indifference, right? You think about it. Somebody goes to sleep, falls asleep, that's passive. They're indifferent. There's a lot of passive moral indifference in our culture today. You see it in everything. I went to a concert last night, like a a kid concert, where one of the kids was playing an instrument. And it was a Halloween concert. And right there in the very front is a young man dressed as Elsa. And in a different day, I would have laughed and been like, he lost a bet. But today, I'm not sure if he lost a bet or if he was trying to make a statement. Church, there's passive moral indifference everywhere, right? People don't want to stand up, don't want to talk about it, don't want to take a stand against the things. Moral indifference sleep. Drunk is active, sinful rebellion. And maybe my analogy fits better in the second than in the first, but, but someone who's drunk, that's like active rebellion. Those are both ways that people miss and, and are unfaithful to the Lord. And so he says, for those who sleep, sleep at night, verse 7. Those who get drunk are drunk at night, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Let us be clear-minded. And how do we know that we're doing that? We've put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul's actually drawing out of Isaiah for that as well. And some of you are familiar with Ephesians 6. This is actually the first time that Paul talks about in his writings spiritual warfare and and talks about these spiritual weapons. Because he wrote this before he wrote Ephesians. And you notice that he gives us that triad of faith and hope and love. How do I remain faithful to the Lord? In the midst of a culture that's gone crazy, how do I remain faithful? I live out my faith. I live with eschatological hope. I live looking forward to the end times. And my love for the Lord causes me to reach out to other people. That's what faithfulness looks like. Verse 9, he says, God has not destined us for wrath. How do I know we're going to miss this stuff? God has not destined us for wrath. Why do I believe that we're not going to be around for the day of the Lord? God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation for our, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Faithfulness begins with the gospel. What he laid out in verses 9 and 10 right there is the gospel of Jesus one more time. And you might think, hey, I can be faithful to the Lord by doing this, this, and this. But faithfulness to the Lord begins with being. It begins with accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we did communion, and that's why I emphasize that we proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until He comes. Because there's even an end times element to communion. There's even an eschatological element to communion. There will be a day when we don't need communion anymore. There will be a day when we see Jesus Live, in person, instead of a little cracker and the cup of juice that spills too easily, we will see Jesus and his real resurrection body. Faithfulness begins with the gospel. Verse 11, it says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. And I like to point out that again, he's said that twice. Chapter 4, verse 18, he said to encourage each other, and here again he's saying, encourage each other, build each other up. I like what the author of Hebrews said, kind of in the same way. He says, Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near in three of the passages that i read today we hear about the nearness and the imminence as we would call of the day of the lord the imminence that all of this is going to go down at any time and i don't know about you but i need encouragement sometimes through that did you know that we have potlucks and eat together not just because we like food now we do like food And if I get done quick enough, you'll get in line before the people coming back from the first service. So let's root for that. (laughs) Let's root for that. But we love to be together and meet together, eat together. We do communion together so that we would be encouraging each other. When we walk out there, it's like walking into the battlefield. When we come into here, this should be a place of refreshment a place where we're strengthened and where we're encouraging each other. And I would submit to you that as we strive to live faithful for the Lord, as we await His return, we need encouragement from each other. So I'd like to summarize this morning by giving you a couple of real specific ways that I think that you can apply this. I'll give you a statement first. The statement is this. eschatological faithfulness balances an intense hope for the future with intensely faithful living in the present. Okay? eschatological faithfulness balances an intense hope for the future with an intensely faithful living in the present. And here's some real practical ways that that works itself out. One of the ways is this. We study eschatology, like we read Revelation, but we avoid the two crazy misses, right? We study it, but we avoid the misses. We live differently from a world that thinks that this is all there is. Like your view of the end times, Helps you to live differently than the world who thinks that this here and now is all there is. We avoid overvaluing temporal things and experiences because we realize that there's more to come. You know, we don't have to despair over injustice and pain. We can hurt over those things, but we don't have to despair over injustice and pain because there will be a day when God settles accounts. Another final application is that we can encourage other believers and that we can warn those who do not yet know Jesus. The last two Saturdays we've held funerals in this building for people who love the Lord. There's been an encouragement in both of those for the people who were here. but there's also a warning for people who don't know the Lord and we can do all of those things together. That's what it looks like to be faithful in the meantime as we await his return. I I ask you to stand with me this morning. I have a word of prayer. Ask God to continue to strengthen us. After I pray, I'll give us a couple of just uh, directions for heading out to uh, eat some food, if that's what you're going to do. Father, we're thankful that we can spend time in your word every week, that we can be strengthened and encouraged by it. God, I pray that we would all keep studying and keep growing. God, help me to continue to hone and strengthen my understanding, not, not of my theological position, but of your word and how all of this fits together. God, I pray that as we study end times, as we think about end times, uh, that it would propel us to faithfulness in the meantime. God, for the person who's here who maybe has just spent too much time dabbling in fanciful things related to the end times, would you use this to convict that person? And then for maybe many of us who just haven't spent any time at all thinking about it, God, that you would convict us as well. God, for the person who maybe is here today hearing about Jesus for the first time or uh, maybe just here for other reasons, God, that you would propel them uh, to continue to think about this day of the Lord situation because we know this is going to come. And God, I pray that that would be the motivation to seek after Jesus. God, we thank you for the time we can have in fellowship uh, this uh, afternoon here for a few minutes at lunch. God, I do pray that it would be more than just eating together, that we would be really encouraging each other all the more because we know the day is drawing near, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.